Good morning. God is the, what is God? God is the creator of everyone and everything. And you know that includes mosquitoes too. <laughs> you know, in the Chinese version, there's this part I keep shaking and trying to repeat a certain word because I was attacked by mosquitoes so I was recording my pastor's voice. <laughs> it's the first time, you know, in like five years of pastor's voicing that I was actually attacked by a mosquito. Why do we want to do the catechism? Uh, to understand the basics of the faith, what we actually believe. You want to contend for the faith, what are you contending for? And also, as a result of that, um, in the first half of this year, we will actually go through the book of Romans. Four months on the book of Romans. And the whole theme is really God's righteousness revealed. So first, it talks about sin. Everyone, the whole world is in sin. The righteousness is needed. And then it talks about salvation. Righteousness provided by faith, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And then after you're saved, chapter 5 to 8 talks about our struggle, sanctification process, that righteousness brings freedom and life. Chapter 9 to 11 of Romans deals with Israel. Because the first eight chapters talk about uh, the gospel going to the Gentiles. So what about the original elect of God, Israel? And so, 9 to 11, it talks about what do we do with them? God's righteousness in history. And finally, from chapter 12 onwards, is righteousness worked out, our service. We know the gospel, we know God, and what do we do with it? And so today, as we go, kick off this whole series, it is on chapter 1, verse 1 to 17, on the gospel power. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, we pray that you'll move freely in our midst, grip our hearts with the gospel, that we'll see Christ lifted up, and Father, you will be glorified. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, Alexandra Gorgoria, he moved from the Soviet Union to the US, and he was a brilliant man. He learned English, completed three PhDs, and then had a, a great career at UPenn, became a very famous professor. Now, notwithstanding all these external achievements and accolades, he couldn't get away from his inner misery because he said, I cannot, couldn't answer the question, why? Why am I doing all this? One day, he was having his shoes shined and he couldn't help but notice that the person shining his shoes was very happy. He was smiling, cheerful, whistling. And so finally, he couldn't take it any longer and he asked him, why are you so happy? The man thought about it and he replied, because of Jesus. Because Jesus died for my sins and God forgave them. That is why I'm happy. Now, of course, Gagarin grew up in an atheistic environment, so he scoffed at the answer, went back to reading his paper, didn't talk to him anymore. But that phrase kept repeating in his mind. Eventually, he went to seek for God and he became a Christian. Went to Wheaton College to teach anthropology and he taught people like Jim Elliott, who later martyred for the Lord, and also a young Billy Graham. You know, St. Augustine, who's probably the most famous theologian in church history, he said, looking at his college professors, he says, they saw many true things about the creature, but they do not seek with true piety for the truth, the architect of creation, and hence, they do not find him. See, what he's saying is what Alexander Gorgoran experienced. There are people who are wise, they're brilliant, they understand the things of the world, the creature, but they're unable to fill their void in their heart. 
because they don't know the Creator. And so we talk about happiness. How do we define it? Well, it's the inner state of well-being where you feel peace, secured assurance, a sense of security and a sense of being loved. And that's happiness. You know, many sociologists, uh, for example, even Viktor Frankl, the Jewish psychologist, in his famous book, The Search for Meaning, he says, you know, you cannot pursue happiness. If you pursue happiness, it's elusive. When you're about to get it, it slips from your grip. Instead, we should pursue meaning. Pursue something greater than yourself. And in the process, as a result, a byproduct, you experience happiness. Now, friends, if that's the way to experience happiness, then there's nothing greater than knowing our Creator, knowing what, why He created us. The answer to the question, why? And so, today we want to talk about how do we do that? To know the Creator through the Gospel. So Romans 1, verse 1 to 17, we ask, what is the Gospel? What is the Gospel? Secondly, what is our duty towards the Gospel? What should we do with the Gospel? So this is the beginning of a letter, an epistle. And in the introduction, uh, it's usually introducing the author, the audience, um, and then thanksgiving and you pray for them, right? But in the midst of this short passage of introduction, it is important to pay attention because it gives us a glimpse of the, the issue throughout the whole letter. So let's see what the book of Romans is about. What is the gospel? It's about Jesus being the promised Savior. Paul, he wrote it, a born servant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. What is a born servant? It's a slave. Now, we don't like the word slave. Say, Who say I'm a slave? I'm free. Are we really free? You know, we are all enslaved to something. Slaved to our desires, enslaved to how people look at us, and mostly we are enslaved to our sin nature. And so the question, friends, is not whether you are a slave or not. The question is, whose slave are you? If we want freedom, if we want to have experienced freedom and happiness, it is to understand why you were created. And so when we are enslaved to Christ, that is where we find true freedom. Paul says, I am enslaved to Christ, set apart for the gospel. Now, we, we keep talking about the gospel, but what is the gospel? In Greek, it's euangelion. You is good. Angelion, angels, or herald. Good herald. Good news. Why? Back then, they don't have Wi-Fi, don't have radio, don't have phone, right? So if they won the battle in the front, front lines, how do they send this news back home? They send a herald, someone to run back. That is why in the battle of Marathon between the Athenians and the Persians, the Athenians were Greek won. And they sent somebody to run 40 click back home to announce the news. And it said that when he got back, he announced victory and he died. That's why today when we run 40 click, we call it marathon. After that battle. Right? So it's a good herald, good news. He announces the good news, victory, victory, and everybody can celebrate. You know, Jesus Christ is the person, the good herald that God sent to this world to declare His victory over death so that all who believe can celebrate. And so the essence of the euangelion, the good news, is the good news. Why is it called gospel? Well, it's, in old English, it's God's spell. It's a good story, God's spell, and hence we get the word gospel. And so the essence of the gospel is good news. It's not good advice, okay? 
There are many religions that give us good advice. You want to be saved, you want eternal life, do good, be kind, fast, you know, go for a pilgrimage, help people. Now, these are good advices, but it's not the good news. Because when we think about salvation, generally there are two categories. One is that we believe that there's something I need to do. And another is that there's something has been done for me. Not something, but everything. Right? So the first, there's something I need to do. is good advice. Be good. But the gospel is not good advice. It tells you everything has been done. It's good news. So Paul says, I'm set apart for this good news. Then he defines the content of the good news, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture about his son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh. Now this means that the gospel was not an afterthought. It was not a last-minute plan. But right from the beginning, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, God promised a saviour through the seed of the woman. Later on, he says this seed of the woman's saviour will come through a person called Abraham and his family particularly for Abraham's grandson, Israel, particularly for Israel's children, the tribe of Judah, and the Saviour will be known as the Lion of Judah. And then he will come through one of the descendants of Judah called David, King David. And so when Paul says these, these few words here, he says, you are special. You know, this story of the gospel, God sending his son to save us, has been promised for a long time ago. It was not a last-minute plan who was declared the Son of God. Jesus was declared a Son of God. How? With power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of Holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. In the New Covenant, He says God, the Saviour will come and bring the Holy Spirit. That's why He says the Spirit of Holiness. But the question is, how do we know He's the real Messiah? Because in the time of Jesus, there were several Messiahs. There's a Galilean that people followed and they had a great movement. You know, a lot of people followed them. But after these people died, these messiahs died, the movement just fizzled out. But Christianity didn't fizzle out. Why? Well, because of the resurrection. And so if you look at early churches, it's not true that they somehow muddled along and then suddenly they formed, formed the church and had this doctrine of the resur resurrection. Every church that existed, existed because they believed Jesus resurrected. And so we have to ask Why? Did they really see it? If not, why would they be willing to pay the price to follow? And so if Jesus did not resurrect, then everything He says is a waste of time. We don't have to go and understand it. But if Jesus did indeed resurrect, then we must know what He is saying. And the question we have to ask is, how well do we know our faith, what Jesus taught? We say we want to contend for the faith. It means it's defined, you know, there's a set of things we believe in. Otherwise, to us, we just have this vague notion of, I need to be holy. What does it mean? Well, come to church, give money, maybe go to this group of people to so sing song every week, you know? We have a vague notion of what it means to be godly, but actually, we don't really know what the Bible says. So in this year, let us learn. Let's commit to, 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 to learn more about your faith right through the New City Catechism, through our uh, Journey Onward series that starts today, through our CE classes through the year. But more importantly, in our daily times to study the Bible for yourself, to know this, this intimacy of a relationship with God. He proved His identity through His resurrection, through whom we have received grace and apostleship 
to bring about the obedience of faith. Means share the faith among all the Gentiles for His name's sake, among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ to all who are beloved of God in Rome called as saints. He says the gospel is for all the Gentiles, means all non-Jewish people, including you in Rome. You are saints. Do you know we are saints? You are a saint, you are a saint, I am a saint. Sometimes it's hard to accept, right? You know St. Thomas, St. Paul, then you call St. Isaac, you say, oh, are you sure? <laughs> now we must understand that what it means to be saints. It means the holy ones. What does it mean to be holy? It means the ones who are set apart. They were distinct from this world. Our values and what we pursue is distinct. We're set apart. That's our identity. And so if that's our identity, we jolly well learn to pursue a life that's holiness, of holiness. We are beloved of God. You know, if God's love is dependent on our good behaviour, we are doomed to fail. But it's because of what Christ has done, we become beloved of God. We stand on the merits of God. Not by our own wisdom or achievements. Like... My introduction with all the intelligent people, all the wisdom. You know, the Bible says, worldly wisdom will one day appear foolish before God. There was this guy who started a new, new business. So first day of work, his office was still having re minor renovation. He was sitting there waiting for customers and he saw a prospective client come in. He thought I better impress him by pretending to be busy. So he picked up his phone and started talking. He says, Harry, Harry, we'll see each other at 2pm, okay? We'll sign a $5 million deal. Then he put down his phone and then he asked that his prospective client, how can I help you? And the man says, you can't help me, I'm here to help you. Why? Because I'm here to hook up your phone. <laughs> can you imagine he was pretending to be impressing this guy, but all the while the guy knew he was, a con he was pretending. You know, if we think one day we can stand before God and say, I'm good, I'm a good person, I've all these things that I've done, friends will appear foolish because before a perfectly holy God will be stripped naked. And what are we going to say to God? But because of the gospel, because of Jesus Christ, we are beloved of God, loved by God, called as saints. And that's why he says, grace to you and peace from our God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Where does he say grace and peace? Well, the Greeks, when they meet each other, they'll say charis, grace. The Jewish people say shalom, peace. So he puts these two together, grace and peace from where? God. Now, how did we define happiness at the beginning? The inward sense of well-being, of peace, of being accepted and loved, right? Right here. What's the source of it? God. So, if we want to experience this happiness, this sense of well-being, we need to return to our Creator to understand why you were created. Hence, the first question of the catechism is, um, what is our only hope in life and death? It is that we are not our own but belong to God. So naturally, the second question is, what is God? God is the creator of everyone and everything. That means He created us, you. He has a plan in your life. He knows what you need. So to fulfill the void, to experience the well-being, we need to turn, go back to our creator to know why He created us and to pursue that. But in this world, we cannot see God. So how do we know He exists? The Bible tells us He has put eternity in our hearts. The things in this world that points us towards the Creator. For example, in the pastor's voice, I shared love and beauty. Right? 
We experience this deep love and then we lose that love. Our loved one passes on or the relationship breaks up. And you miss that feeling, that brokenness. You want to hold on to something that's more permanent, more eternal. Friends, that's eternity in our hearts. And that is why those philosophers, theologians say those are signposts. Signposts in this world to point us to something beyond this material world. Or for example, the concept of justice. To some of us, that's very important, right? To a lawyer's justice. Or you, or you read those mystery novels, right? At the end of it, what happens? Well, the mystery is solved, the bad person is apprehended. Can you imagine if you read to the end and then suddenly it just ends? Mystery not solved, person not, not, not apprehended. How do you feel? Wow, waste of time. Unfair. Why do you feel unfair? Who tells you that every story must end well? That the mystery must be solved? Who? Why do we have this innate sense of justice that at the end of the day, the wrongs of this world will be made right? We see those with special needs or the poor being bullied by people. Immediately, we feel the sense of indignance, right? Anger. How can... This is not fair. Unjust. But if we look in the world of nature, we, it's the world of survival of the fittest. This happens all the time. So instead of feeling upset, you need to tell yourself, calm down, calm down. This is natural. I just walk away, you know. Would you do that? No, of course not. But where comes this innate sense of justice? So the sense of the world ought to be like that. That oughtness. They are signposts to point us to a world of the Creator that is perfect. It's the sense of eternity that we want to hold on to. It's an echo of Eden that was lost, a hint of heaven to come. So the gospel tells us, well, the way to the Creator is through Christ. And we are saved through the gospel. In 1734, May 24th, there was a burnt-out missionary who attended a religious meeting. He didn't want to go. He was just tired. He just read the book of Romans chapter 1 and he was wrestling with it. He says, what is righteousness? How can the just live by faith? I've done so much for God. Will He really save me? In fact, a few months before, he wrote in his journal. He was going on a mission trip. He says, I go there to save these people, but who will save me? And then in the meeting, in the journal he wrote, about a quarter before nine, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that He had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. The person was John Wesley. In that meeting, he came to this truth that the just shall live by faith that he was wrestling with, gripped his heart, and he was just renewed. He started a revival in England to America and even to today. And he started the whole Methodist church. That is the power of the gospel. So we say, what is the gospel? Well, it is that Jesus is the promised saviour. And so what should we do with that? If there's a power to change people, to save lives, then the duty to the gospel is to declare this power. So Paul goes on to say, after praying for them, he says, first, I mean, after introducing himself, he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Why? Because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now to them, the ends of the world was Rome. Okay, so he was talking to them. It's already there, right? For, for God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of His Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. 
always in my prayers making requests. Thanksgiving and prayer is, is a standard format, okay? If perhaps now at last by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to see you. So he hasn't, have, he hasn't been to Rome, alright? So how did the gospel travel there? No, through the believers, the Jewish believers who went all over the world. So Paul longs to go there. Why? First reason, I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. Purpose? To establish you. Whatever the spiritual gift is, the gifts that God gives us is to build one another up. So we have spiritual gifts, right? It's not just to edify yourself, to make yourself feel good that I'm gifted. It is used to build the body of Christ up to establish them. And then, that is, I may encourage, I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us by others' faith, both yours and mine. Every week we meet in our DGs for what? It's not just to sit there and sing song, to see how are you, right? It's to encourage ourselves in the Word, to share our faith, to be of mutual encouragement. Now, I've been, the last six months, I've been visiting the different DGs, okay? After COVID, I stopped, and now I began. So every time I go to the DG, you know, I, I just, I'm encouraged by listening to your faith, you know, even though I don't say much, okay? Because I, I go to a DG, everybody don't say anything, you know? It's like, very scared. I don't know why. Actually, my true intention is to go there so I can have free food to eat, okay? <laughs> now, I sit there, and I must say, I'm encouraged, because I also need encouragement to see how God has been working in your life. A friend of mine recently shared with me, he says, you know, churches in the family struggle once in a while, or they suffer once in a while, but pastors suffers all the while. Why? Because so many people, your problem, your problem, your problem, all become my problem. <laughs> but if I don't feel that, then I'm not qualified to be a pastor, right? And so, I also need an encouragement in the group when I listen to the faith stories. You know, it's an encouragement. Friends, every week we gather to remind one another that we have been set apart but to live counter-cultural lives. Through all these challenges we face, the Word of God holds us back, the Spirit of God draws us together, comforts us, and helps us to fix our eyes on eternity so that we may impact the world we live in. But the faith is not just for us that we can come together to Kumbaya. Paul says the third reason why he gathers, he wants to go to Rome. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I plan to come to you and have been prevented so far. So he tried a few times, but he failed. Why he want to do that? So that, the third so that, uh, I may obtain some fruit among you, even as among the rest of the Gentiles, like the other churches I've been to. You know, that there's fruit of his work that affects the people there. Just like last week, we talked about contending for the faith from the book of Jude, right? How do you contend? The second part has three major imperatives. One is remember the apostles' teaching. That is by building yourself up in the faith and by praying the Spirit. It's not just head knowledge, it's in your life, the relationship with God, knowing what you believe. Second is keeping yourself in the love of God for eternity, understanding that we are not of this world, our hope is in the world to come, and, and keeping that relationship of love, know that you are beloved of God. That gives us the strength to go through the life. And third, he says, be merciful. Be merciful to those who doubt. Don't, don't, don't judge them. Uh, save some through the gospel. Snatch them out of the fire. Be merciful with fear. Don't fall into the same sin. So you see, there's an outworking of our faith. It's not just for ourselves. And that is why we always encourage you to eat, eat chasu rice, right? Lunchtime, don't just hide in your own cubicle you know, and be antisocial. It's easy just to eat with somebody. 
And so now we talk about the Chinese New Year, Love Comes Home. Right? We open up our house to invite people in. That's, the, that's hospitality. Sharing a meal with somebody. The whole idea is in our daily lives, let's be intentional about building relationships. And there'll be opportunities then to invite them for events, to church, to share your story. Otherwise, there's no opportunity. This year, in June, we have a testimony night. In uh, Christmas, we have our, our carnival. And in between, there are different events. So would you be willing to, to pray? You know, I ask God to bring these people into your midst. Be intentional about building relationships so that this year you may see some fruit fruit of the gospel. And he says, I am under, why he does all these things? Because I'm under obligation, both to Greeks and barbarians, both to wise and foolish. For, so for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. We owe a gospel debt. If the gospel is so wonderful, God loves us, we are undeserving, Jesus gave his life, we experience this freedom, then we ought to share this with others. That is the gospel debt. He says, I'm eager to share the gospel with you. With who? Greeks and barbarians. No, we don't imagine barbarians are uncivilized. They are cavemen, okay? Actually, it breaks people into Greeks, those who speak the Greek language and those who don't. And those who don't, they, when they talk bra 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 barbaros in Greek, translated to barbarians, but they're not cavemen, okay? They are not uncivilized. They are educated. The point is, he, he, he feels this gospel debt to, to, to share the gospel with the people because of the power of the gospel to change lives. Finally, he says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why is he so eager? He says, I'm not ashamed. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, then to the Greeks. It comes out from the Jewish nation to the Jews first, but it's for all the world. Why did he say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? More importantly, you have to ask, am I ashamed of the gospel? You know, Jack was walking out of the worship hall when a pastor shook his head and pulled him aside and says, Jack, you need to join the Lord's army. And he says, I'm already in the Lord's army. And then the pastor says, then why I only see you twice a year? During Easter and Christmas. And he laughed. He says, it's because I'm the Lord's secret agent. <laughs> Are you the Lord's secret agent? You know, you study in a school for four years until you graduate. Nobody knows you're Christian. You work in a place for five years. No one knows you're a Christian until one day they meet us on an MRT station on a Sunday and ask you, where are you going? Oh, I'm going to, 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 to church. Why do we not want to share the gospel? Well, people may think, oh, you're so judgmental. How can you believe in something like that? How can you be so superstitious? Say, ah, you're a Christian, you live like that. No, if we have such thoughts, perhaps, perhaps, is because you are ashamed of the gospel. Why did Paul says, don't be ashamed of the gospel? Because, friends, the Roman Christians were ashamed of the gospel. Just think about it. What is Rome? It's the capital city of the world's superpower of the time, right? And where did Christianity come from? Some Ulu, small country that they conquered. In Rome, they are well known for their philosophers and philosophy and all these ideas. Why would they want to listen to this thing that came from a poor Jewish carpenter? In Rome, position, power, money was important to them. But who were becoming Christians? The poor, the slaves, the women, 
And they say, you come to church, we're all brothers and sisters, there's no, no classes, no difference. You know, this is totally inconceivable and unacceptable to a Roman person. I've worked so hard for all these things, and then now you say it's not important? I need to be friend, 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 my, my slave? And you know what's the worst of all? It's the message of the resurrection. You know, sometimes we think those people back there, they are uneducated, not scientific. That's why it's easier for them to believe in the resurrection. Today, we are educated and scientific, very difficult. It's not, you know, they are not stupid people. You read in the Bible, every time Paul preached, right, at the beginning, the audience is receptive. At what point do they turn against him? When Paul talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How can it be? So if you think it's difficult today, it's worse back then. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's God's power to save me. And his life was transformed. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote about what he went through because the people he had led to Christ, the Christians of Corinth, were now following other people who claimed to be servants of Christ. So he said, you think they are servants of Christ? You're I am more so. He says, if I'm insane, he doesn't want to boast, but he says, if I have to boast, it's far more. I, I did far more labors in far more imprisonments, beaten times without a number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jewish 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I have spent in the ocean. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers from city, dangers from wilderness, dangers from the sea, danger from my brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. If this is not enough, apart from all these external things, there's a daily pressure on me of the concern for all the churches. Just reading this, you already feel tired. You think it's easier to be a Christian today? No way. But why did Paul go through all these things? You know, his background, right? He was in the city of Tarsus, a Roman outpost. He was, even though he was Jew, he was a Roman citizen, which means of two things. One, your family is very rich. Secondly, well, they have a lot of contribution to the, to the war, military contribution. Whatever it is, he came from an esteemed background. Paul was a disciple of Gamaliel. Who's Gamaliel? Gamaliel later became the high priest. You know, the high priest, you know. He was, Gamaliel was the grandson of the great Jewish rabbi Hillel. And so, Paul is his disciple. It means he got a chance to be high priest too. So among the Jewish people, he was also esteemed. And yet, he forsook all those things. He went through all these things. Why? Because he knew the gospel was a power to save. And in many other instances, he says, you just do search, Google the word ashamed in the Bible. It comes out, you read them. He says, I am not ashamed. Why? I know whom I believe. I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. It's not just about the temporal world that we are, we are decaying, but the inner treasure we have that's renewing day by day. For I know who I trust and believe in, Jesus Christ. And he finally ends with this, which is the theme for the whole book. For it is the righteousness of God is revealed. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, and it is written, by the righteous shall live by faith. Why is the gospel the righteousness of God revealed? We think of the gospel as 
grace, God saved me. All the good things, but why is it God's righteousness? Because the gospel reveals to us God's perfect standards that we cannot fulfill. The gospel reveals that the only way is God taking out His wrath on His Son. And the only way we can have is faith, trusting in what Jesus has done. That is why the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And throughout the whole book, you unpack this concept. From faith to faith means we cannot do it. You begin with faith, you end with faith. It's impossible to do it by your own life. So, what is righteousness? Righteousness is like a report card. At the end of the year, we get a report book to see how well we have done. It's a validating performance. It means how I have performed to validate my existence, to prove I'm worthy to be loved, to prove I'm worthy to exist. And so we prove our own righteousness through our works, achievements, studies, being loved, getting married, having children. But how many of this can stand before God? Before God, all these righteousness that we try to validate our performance is invalid because God requires a perfect report card. One that is given to, by us, achieved by His Son. Hence, He ends with this, the righteous shall live by faith. And we know this is possible, that we don't have to be ashamed of the gospel because Jesus Christ took our shame. Hebrews 12 says, follow Christ, fix our eyes on Him. Jesus, who for the joy set before Him. What set before Him? Us. Endured the cross, despising the shame, and set down victorious. The shameful cross that nailed our unashamed Saviour causes the cross to become a symbol of His love. A love that overwhelms the shame of our lives so that, friends, we don't have to be ashamed of the gospel. So we need to declare this power of the gospel. You know, when we, last year we talked about the book of Galatians. I shared with you a story of Martin Luther. Started the Reformation. That's why today we have the Catholic Church and the, and the other Protestant churches. And he was wrestling with this idea that the judge shall live by faith through the book of Galatians and Romans. And in the midst of his struggles, he says, I'm really a monk, I know, I serve God, but can I really stand righteous before God? I don't think so. So this phrase came to him, the judge shall live by faith. So he decided to go on a pilgrimage because that's what religion does. You want to be holy? Well, go and touch holy things, go to holy places, don't eat certain things, right? So he went it's just like now in Jerusalem, right, where the stone where they bury Jesus, you know, everybody, all the tourists will go there and touch it and kiss it, you know. So the stone is very smooth, smoothened by people's saliva. So as I was queuing up, I mean, I, they were supposed to queue, I was looking at the queue and look at, yee, who wants to go and touch that thing, you know. But so many people want, why? Because it makes me close to God. But Luther went on this pilgrimage, he felt sick along the way, he almost died. And again, he says, if I die, can I face God? And for the second time, the just shall live by faith, came to comfort him. And he wrote this in his journal, that holiness is restricted to no soil, no system, no right. It springs up in the heart where faith dwells. That's why I say Christianity, we don't have holy places or holy things. We only have a holy God who wants a holy people. Holiness comes from inside. Of course, he went to Rome and he was deeply disappointed since no one can imagine what sins and infamous actions are committed in Rome. They must be seen and heard to be believed. You must see with your own eyes to believe this is Rome. Why did I travel so far to come here to be holy? Thus, they are in the habit of saying, if there is a hell, Rome is built over it. It is an abyss 
Friends, issues every kind of sin. Now, I'm not causing us to be, have hatred to Catholics, okay? I'm just saying what happened at the time. When, Paul, when Luther went there, he says that is what he was experiencing. Then he was praying on the um, Pilate's staircase. Remember I shared with you? That staircase is when Jesus was brought to Pontius Pilate. He walked up that staircase. And as it said, the Romans brought it from Jerusalem to Rome. So when the Pope opens the, the door to the, the staircase, you know, you have to kneel on every, every staircase and pray. And then God will answer your prayers. And, was Luther, and while Luther was praying for his father's health, the third time the just shall live by faith came to him and he transformed his heart. Years later, he wrote about the tower experience as his conversion. He says, I greatly long to understand the Paul's epistles to the Romans. Nothing stood in the way by this one expression, the justice of God. He says, I could understand the book except for this phrase, the justice of God. Because I took it to mean that God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. His understanding of God's justice is God is just, punishes the unjust. But what, why is it a struggle to, for him to understand? He says, my situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience. I had no confidence that my merit would please God. He says, I have no confidence that my merit will please God, even though I have li lived a good life. That is why he wrestles with this idea of justice. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against Him. Day and night I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement, the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that through gift and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. His concept of God's justice is God's wrath on him and it's difficult for him. He said, he hated this God. I tried to live holy life, but I cannot until he understood that it's a gift. You know, friends, this passage, the same passage that changed Luther's life, changed John Wesley's life, is the same power we have today. Is God's righteousness revealed in Christ. And if we believe in the gospel, we are freed. Freed from the sins of the world, the bondage. Freed to become who God wants us to be. To return to our Creator. To know what you have been created for. And in the, in the midst of pursuing that, understand, have this, the sense of well-being. Not by worldly wisdom, but by godly wisdom. That is through faith. So in this year, let us commit to learning more about the faith, to know what you believe. Not only that, but also to share, to be a witness, to build relationships, to invite people for opportunities to listen to the gospel. Because the gospel is God's power to change lives. Let us pray. Let's spend some time before the Lord as we worship, as we respond in prayer. We pray for God to lead someone to our lives that we can reach out to. We can be intentional about building relationships. That we can continue to grow in this faith. Just spend some time before the Lord to, to pray.